The Fourth Watch starts now. Everybody, you're listening to the Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed week. Tonight's going to be an investigation into the dark shadows of one of the most influential occultists in the modern world. We'll be digging into the connections of secret societies, magic practices, occult doctrines, music infiltration, satanic ritual-based crimes, as well as the people who have been disciples of this particular man who called himself the Beast. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submitted for the approval of the Fourth Watch Radio Network, I call this episode... Children of the Beast, Aleister Crowley's Shadow Over Humanity, with special guest, William Ramsey. Well, it's officially Thursday, and that means it's officially time for the fourth watch. It is such a blessing to be back with you all, and we've got a great show on tap tonight. If you're a new listener, we're very grateful to have you tuning in, and we want to let you know that there's a brand new show posted every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard. Be sure to head on over to fourthwatchradio.com. That's F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.com, fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find show archives, links to our free mobile apps for Apple and Android devices, links to all of our websites, as well as a donate page that will show multiple ways you can help support the Fourth Watch Ministries. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes if that's your preferred method of listening. Now, tonight's going to be a real treat as we sit down with William Ramsey to discuss the major influence that Aleister Crowley has had upon the modern world as we know it. And we will then move into the beginning of a new Bible study series on the book of James. So be sure to stay tuned in for that as well as we conclude the interview with William. So tonight we're dealing with satanic forces and entities even that operated with and through this particular man, Aleister Crowley. And these same entities and forces continue to operate all over the world as these ancient practices and doctrines are proliferating into the end times. Our guest tonight is a Christian author researcher, occult crime investigator, and his website is occultinvestigations.com. That's occultinvestigations.com. I definitely want to encourage you all to check his site out when you get a chance for even more resources. Now, with that said, let's go ahead and welcome on William Ramsey. William, welcome to The Fourth Watch. How are you tonight? Really good. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me on your show. Absolutely. You know, I, I see the stuff that you post on the internet. I see your posts on Facebook. And I'm like, man, I got to get in touch with this guy. Like he, the stuff that you're putting out there, it's so, it just, it causes you to think outside of the normal box that so many Americans force themselves into. And uh, you sent me a copy of your latest book, Children of the Beast. And this is getting into Aleister Crowley's shadow over humanity. I tried to show uh, the impact of Aleister Crowley upon the 20th century through tracing individuals who admired him, who followed him. Or who knew him? So it was it was I, it was a kind of a vast undertaking involving a wide variety of different books, and I think I just showed that 
our modern culture has been influenced by people who took Aleister Crowley's ideas to heart and made an impact upon the modern world. People don't realize that the doctrines that have been proliferated go right back to Crowley and magic. Um, this is one thing that's always blown my mind when I first started to wake up. Uh, you know, growing up, it was part of the whole cool, rebellious thing to do uh, was to listen to like Led Zeppelin. And, and some people would laugh and say, well, that's not rebellious. They're just like a classic rock group. But people don't realize that the music of Led Zeppelin is directly influenced by these doctrines that were brought about. And I mean, if I'm not mistaken, Led Zeppelin, uh, I forget which one of them or if they went in together, but they bought one of Crowley's castles at one point. That's correct. Uh, the, the Led Zeppelin was really a band that was formed by its head, Jimmy Page, who was the lead guitarist. And he had a very deep interest in the occult and Crowley in particular. And once they made tons of money selling their albums, Jimmy Page bought everything he could that Crowley owned and also interacted with some of Crowley's followers and people like Kenneth Anger. But he also bought a mansion in Scotland on Loch Ness, the same uh, lake where people talk about the Loch Ness Monster, and it's called Bulliskin Man Mansion. It actually just burned down last year. Um, but uh, he was in the same place where Crowley did a tons of rituals where there were supposedly demons invoked and evoked uh, at that site. You know, I, I have to say, man, it's mind-blowing because this, this is right in line with the types of deceptions that we're seeing today. I, I mean, this same type of practice, people act like all these things are right out of horror movies, but in reality, these things could be going on next door. These things could be going on in closed doors in government buildings. I mean, people don't know. Uh, there was even a church in New Orleans, and you may know about this, and I don't want to get too off track, but there was a, a, a church in New Orleans, and they got busted because they were doing satanic rituals in the church. Correct. I know about that. That was the inspiration for the TV or, or um, online show True Detective. That was actually based upon that whole case that went down in Louisiana. It blows my mind. Yeah. Um, now, I, I do have to say, I've got a bad habit. I've got a bad habit of calling him Crowley. Um, and, and, and I have a reason for this. So, so let's just have some fun for a second. Okay. Um, Watching the TV show Supernatural, they call him Crowley. They refer to a guy named Crowley who's like the, the king of hell. Um, and, and I don't recommend Supernatural people. I'm not, I, I don't want people to start commenting, you know, oh, he watches Supernatural. Uh, but I, I did watch so many seasons of it and doing research for cer uh, certain topics because a good friend of mine, Tom Horn, actually got brought on to help write, or I guess they, they uh, used him as a consultant because they were, they were using real research into making this TV show. Interesting. They call him Crowley. Um, I used to listen to Ozzy Osbourne when I was a teenager and Mr. Crowley. So I have I have a disposition. I'm going to try to work on it, but uh, I know you I know you're saying it correctly. Well, I used to say Crowley, too. I was one of the original. And then I, I read some of his stuff where he rhymes his name with holy. So, right. It's pro, pro and it's it's a tough habit to break. It took me a long time. But that is how you say it correctly. Crowley. I know this. Uh, even Candy. You got Candy Crowley on Fox News, uh, who clearly is some kind of a love child of the Crowley family. I mean, you can see that forehead just a blazing. And then you got uh, Barbara Bush. I I'm sure you probably get tired of people bringing up Barbara Bush, right? <laughs> They're always curious. I mean, everybody's curious. But the reality is, is that that's a, an idea or a, a meme that won't go away. You know, it's, it's hard to discount. I've put the pictures of multiple pictures of Crowley and next to multiple pictures of her. And it's the same blockhead. Crowley had a kind of a bigger head compared to his body, and he always try, was trying to kind of disguise it by wearing 
scarves and stuff like that. But she is the same thing. She has a huge block head, kind of like Crowley. So, and the, the rumors go back to her mother being in swinging, kind of like uh, the France, the golden era of France in the 20s, when many writers, literati, literary type people were there. And Crowley was there as well, doing rituals uh, that involved and required servitors. It needed female servitors. So the rumor is she was one of the servitors, and she came back with Barbara Bush. Um, and it's weird. If you look at pictures of her, I have pictures of her with her given family. She's an outlier. She's, a, she's like a genetic anomaly. She doesn't look like the other children. And uh, it's pretty weird. And then her relationship with George Bush, Bush Sr. was from a very, very early age. She was 16 and he was 18. So there's a little whiff of kind of an arranged uh, marriage there. So That makes sense. And uh, even if you go to Ancestry.com and you trace back the lineage of the Bush family, you're going to land on Vlad the Impaler. Yeah, that's right. You know, and ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know who that is, we're dealing with the historical human being. There was actually a historical man, Vlad the Impaler, who all of the lore was created about Dracula. Um, he was actually a man. Uh, obviously, that, that's a whole other discussion. But on both sides of the family, both sides of the Bush family, you've got deep occult roots. Yeah, and I've, uh, there's a on – the, uh, on another podcast, it was a uh, guy's name, the kind of the original – conspiracy theorist his name was oh now i can't uh it was one of the original guy he died but he had somebody on his show trace back uh the bush ancestry and they were related to the knights templar as well who were destroyed on friday the 13th so yep the leaders of this world they all come from certain pedigrees for the most part i mean granted there may be uh, a wild card brought in here or there but we're going back to bloodlines, and these people are placed in office. They're placed as a king, placed as a queen. Uh, the marriages are arranged. So it makes no, uh, it's no surprise to me to hear this about Barbara Bush. But let's, let's talk about your book. Let's talk about Children of the Beast. Th this book here, I've got it sitting right here in front of me. And on the cover, you've got a picture of Aleister Crowley. Hey, I did it. I said Crowley. <laughs> good, good job. <laughs> but you've got, it, you've got his, uh, one of his popular mug shots. That's what I call it. It's just a headshot of him black and white, and it says The Beast 666. Now, give us a brief background on this man. And, and then I want, I want to get into a little bit of his background, some of his affiliations, some of his practices, but then I want to tie it forward into the theme of the book, which is his shadow over humanity, because people, people need to understand what we're experiencing today goes back to these satanic practices that were proliferated by this man. Very true. He was a really... a, a, a the firstborn born son of a wealthy brewery family, and he was very privileged. He was from the upper class in a very class-conscious country in Victorian England. So at the end of the 19th century, at the very kind of the apex of the British Empire, he grew up. And he was a son of what was called the Exclusive Brethren, which was a subset of the Plymouth Brethren. And he came from a very strict religious upbringing that he eventually rebelled against. Um, he had some of the best uh, training, or he went to the best college you could imagine in, in uh, Cambridge. He uh, spent his time at some point while he was at Cambridge, he decided to become an occultist. And because he had tons of money, he never had to work. So he focused most of his life upon magic with a K, a K being the 11th uh, letter in the alphabet. He, he spent his time on poetry. He said he was white hot on three things, mountain climbing, poetry, and magic. 
And he really set himself up to be like one of the greats. He admired people who were adventurers and he traveled the world. He actually circumnavigated the world twice uh, right at the turn of the century. And he said, I was part of the, while he was at Cambridge, I was part of the glories of the past. I made a firm resolution to be one of the glories of the future. Well, the, what he wanted to be remembered for was his occult mastery. He joined these occult orders from a very early age. One of the prime primary uh, orders was called the Golden Dawn, the Order of a Golden Dawn. These are post-Masonic orders of belonging, you know, involving magic. And after he got done with that, he joined. He actually started his own occult order called the AA, or the Argen Argen Astrum. It was basically the Silver Star based upon the Moon. And <clears throat> then he became affiliated with the OTO, which was actually a German secret society, the Ordo Templi Orientis, which he headed from 1925 to his death. And he spent all of his time reading and writing. He was a very prodigious writer. He left tons of articles. Uh, he wrote for Vanity Fair back at the turn of the century. He made wrote tons of magical treatises of a wide variety, organized them. And he started his own temple called the Abbey of Thelema. And it was in Cefalu, which is in northern Sicily, where he spent time just doing practicing magic of all different types. People described the place as corrupt, and there were all kinds of uh, vile writings on the wall. But the Albia Philema, because of Crowley's, you know, residing there, became something that was of interest to a wide variety of people after he died. Crowley eventually died in 1947, a desiccated heroin addict who took 10 times the amount, lethal amount of heroin per day, just a massive amounts of drugs. And it was, you know, he codified his religion into one phrase, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. So he believed in the totality of the human will. Um, and that, that phrase is 11 uh, words long, 11 syllables long. And 11 was really his prime number, the number of magic, the number of the unifying of the five and six together, which is the pentagram and the hexagram. So that signifies the macrocosm and the microcosm coming together in an individual. And I think what really Crowley offered to a wide variety of people who admired him was his interest in fulfilling all of your personal desires, whatever you saw, and also the fact that he left so much information to read. He gave people the opportunity to learn magic like he had done it. He wrote his masterwork was called Magic in Theory and Practice, and uh, people still read that today. And the OTO is still around. And really what he claimed to be his most important event happened in 1904, where he was supposedly visited by a being who in three days gave him a book called the Book of the Law. And the Book of the Law was um, written, and it had some very nasty uh, pieces in there about plucking the, the eye of Muhammad out, and uh, really very, very vicious. But it basically, because of Crowley receiving this book from this demon called Awas, the Lord of the Air, um, he thought of himself as a new prophet, really a prophet of this new aeon. That he wanted a cosmological change to happen in the world, and that cosmology would be the change from this old dying god he called Osiris, this Christian ideal, to the, the new age of Horus, the crowned and conquering child, which would be a new era of magic and blood and death. And some, in many ways, after 1904, the, 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 the 20th century has been fraught with incredible bloodshed and war from the First World War to the Second World War. 
And really our present day is still uh, kind of in an age of chaos. So in some ways, Crowley really wanted to have his corpus, all of his knowledge, push forward into followers. And I think what I tried to do in my book is to show that seeding of his followers to the present day through people who are really aren't very well known uh, publicly. But I think it shows in the book that they influence people who are publicly known. And it shows that Crowley's ideas and his secret society are still really around today. And I think it's important to understand as Christians that um, these these secret societies do exist and have an effect upon our politics and culture. There's a very popular uh, picture that's been floating around the Internet for some time now, and I'm sure you've seen this, William. Um, it's a picture of Obama, and I think he's he's paying some kind of service to some children in a, in a school, and he's wearing a T-shirt with the face of Crowley on it. That was Photoshopped. I, I was just going to say, I you know, I'm a graphic designer, and when I saw it, I was like, that's totally Photoshopped. Absolutely. But then you find other photos of a lot of celebrities, and they're actually wearing Crowley shirts. It's very true. Yeah, I mean, you can go buy the shirts. Uh, not not that I would want to encourage that, but the the, the difference is, is like the, the shirt that Obama had on, you, it was clearly Photoshopped. I mean, there was even, I even noticed like a little remnant of a Nike sign on it. Um, but I see all these other pictures of pop stars, celebrities, movie stars. Uh, you know, I used to listen to a group called 311 when I was younger. And I remember opening the cover of one of their CDs and uh, one of the lead singers is wearing a Crowley shirt. It says, doest thou wilt. And one of the band members has a tattoo of do what thou wilt on it. So I've seen that as well. But but that goes back to the age old lie of Satan where do what you want to do. Go ahead and eat the fruit. Don't worry about what God told you. You eat from this tree and you'll be a God. And the whole idea of the humanism and the problem we see now, it's like they're calling it humanism, but it's really Satanism. It's really going back to Luciferian practices of do whatever you want to do because you're your own God. Right. I totally agree with that. And it's interesting that strain has went through through Crowley and through L. Ron Hubbard, who created Scientology. And that was one of the central dictums of his whole religion was to tr- turn people into gods. And as a Christian, when you read that, you go, oh, well, that's that's obvious what you're up to. I mean, and he also disparaged Christianity. So, you know, you see the and, and that's actually what Timothy Leary said. You are a god. Act like one. So these people are repeating these very important. Uh, important concepts to understand that are all from the the foundation of the Bible, that it's, you know, this whole kind of uh, battle, the spiritual battle is still taking place now, you know, very in the present age. So. Absolutely. Now, you'd mentioned something about Crowley. Uh, Crowley. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you checked yourself. You're, hey, I think by the end of the interview, you're going to have it down. I'm, I'm not going to edit that out. I'm going to leave it in there because it's, it's, it's just a good reminder. But, okay, so you mentioned that Crowley was visited uh, by AWOS. AWOS, correct. Now, Crowley is on record. Uh, he was able to tap into a whole different type of magic than some of these little dime store you know, wannabes these days. I mean – you know, we have little people that are just trying to learn, trying to play with it. But then he was actually a master magician and he was able to tap into these different dimensions to the point where his rituals were so authentic. Even when he would create and alter the rituals, uh, he would personalize the rituals. He was so successful in doing it. The results were so real. I- I'm going to be careful how I say this because some people don't like the- this wording, but he was literally able to open up portals per se. Uh, because he had physical manifestations throughout his life. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. From the very beginning, when he did the Abermelon uh, ritual at Boleskin Manor, he had physical manifestations all the way through to probably um, in the 20s, you know. But he had one of the more remarkable manifestations was 
something he did, uh, I think it was the Jurensis working, where he summoned this entity lamb uh, that looks like a gray alien. And he drew it before 1947. You know, it was drawn in his encyclopedia, the Equinox, sometime uh, in 19, in the 1910 or by 1920. It's a remarkable picture. I have it in my book. But the fact that he could actually bring to uh, to some kind of understanding this this entity, he also was in Algeria with one of his kind of a, this hapless follower by the name of Victor Newberg. And there they did some of the same rituals that John D. and Edward Kelly did, where they summoned this demon called Koranzan. And he writes about that in great detail. And he says he, he really did bring this to manifestation in his uh, in this kind of old system that John D. and Kelly had. So um, it's very remarkable. And you and in my book, it shows that who was there in that same spot. You know, who was it was Timothy Leary was there with one of his sidekicks in the same spot where Crowley and Newberg were performing that ritual where they summoned new Korans on. So. Crowley has had, and he sought out to have contact with other spirits. That was really one of his main goals in his rituals, is to try to find intelligence from the spirit realm. Uh, Book four was another one where he writes down his contact and information from these other entities. Um, so, And there was another rumor that was bandied about by uh, somebody who knew Crowley that said that during one of his rituals, he went insane and ended up in a mental institution, and another guy died. And I recall that in my book. Now you mentioned uh, you've mentioned multiple uh, rituals that he's that he's not just practiced, but he's recorded. Uh, he, he's written about how to do these things. And anybody that goes into a, a new age bookstore or a metaphysical bookstore, generally speaking, depending on the size of the store, there will be a whole section on Crowley and magic. Yep. A, a whole section. I've seen this myself. I mean, for research purposes, I've gone in. I've seen this. Uh, I wasn't thumbing through the books, but I saw them. Whole sections where people can follow his steps. There's even, uh, I, I believe the terminology for this is wire coil recording. This was a way that they could record uh, before we had audio tapes or cassette tapes. They could record with some kind of a wire coil. He's recorded some of his rituals where people are sharing the stuff on the internet, on YouTube, and they're allowing to, they're basically allowing this ritual to take place over their airwaves in their home. And it's very dangerous stuff. People think that this is a game. They're they're power hungry. They want to get involved in something where they can actually inherit some form of demonic power. Of course, they don't see it as being demonic. And this is how we end up with all these death cults. This is how we end up with these serial killers. Yep, very true. Um, and I want to get into that here in a minute. But tell us a little bit. Um, you're far more researched than I am into Crowley. I've done I've done quite a bit of research, but not what you've done. And I've made reference before. I've just kind of scratched the surface about the pyramid, the Great Pyramid ritual. That was uh, he was in the ritual with his wife. Uh, her name was Kelly. Her, her last name was Kelly. He was there where he um, supposedly brought to life some spectral power, some light, and he was able to light up the inter. And he climbed down to the the king's chamber in the center of that pyramid, one of the pyramids, and supposedly. Uh, summon some astral light to light it up. So uh, I really can't say that I've really, when I was studying Crowley, I never was interested as much. I was curious about the actual times and dates of his magical workings, but not in detail of the actual step-by-step processes that he was interested in. So I am familiar with kind of like the banishing ritual, kind of things that you're supposed to do to start the ritual. You're supposed to cleanse the planes and then do the ritual and then finish up closing these portals. 
So in some ways you can say portals, but you're supposed to tear the, I mean, he's trying to tear the dimensions in a certain sense, you know, right. through, through some of these preliminary uh, steps. And there is a core uh, recording, like you said, of Crowley doing the banishing ritual of the pentagram. So now the thing that gets my attention here, and uh, I, I bring up the pyramid ritual because it, it actually is going to connect to a, to a theme here that we're talking about. When he did this ritual, uh, it was very much talked about by others. When he when he got done with this ritual, he he went back home. He wrote about it. Um, it was known that the being that he contacted again this is this is the alleged story uh, was that he admitted that the being that he contacted was Lucifer. Eventually, yeah, but that was for the Book of the Law. He eventually said that Awas was uh, Satan, the Lucifer of the current starry side. He admitted that later. Right, exactly. Later. This came out later. And you fast forward so many years and you have this very successful entrepreneur. Uh, this is crazy. I've mentioned this before, but for some of you new listeners, there was a man who, who was coming up. He was an entrepreneur, very sharp guy, had a lot of had a lot of good business sense. And he was uh, a disciple. And that's probably I'm probably using the word disciple a little loosely here. But he was a follower of Crowley's teachings. And his name was Isaac Tigert. Now, this is the guy that started Hard Rock Cafe. Oh, interesting. He had a lot of money. He had a whole playground. Uh, I mean, he could, this guy could have done anything he wanted to do. He had the money to go rent out this chamber of the pyramid. And he went step by step by step, following the magic of Crowley. And he performed the same ritual that Crowley did in the same place at the same time. He was visited by the same being of light. This angel of light, whatever you want to call it, appeared to Tigris. And he told him he was to come back to America and build the Great Pyramid of Tennessee. That's right. So that's the Memphis, Tennessee Pyramid. That's amazing. You know, I never knew. I knew that that was an occult building, but I didn't know the Crowley background in that guy. That's incredible. And so he built this pyramid, and it, it really did raise a lot of controversy. A lot of people were upset that they were putting this giant monument where they put it. But right. the guy had political connections. He had money secret society ties. Matter of fact, this guy dabbled in all types of magic. I mean, all types of new age mysticism. I heard that they invited all kinds of people there to the you know, pyramid for parties at all types of the day and stuff like that. Yeah. And in and, and the capstone, this is the crazy part. There was a little box that was soldered up into the capstone. And the, man, this made national news. People were so uncomfortable because they said, what's in the box? What is in the secret box? It's being soldered up literally to where no one could get to it. No one could open it. And he wouldn't give an answer. And so this even got the attention of the federal government, wow. which, I mean, very crazy stuff. They finally went up there and they pulled the box down. We still didn't get the full report of what was in the box. But the pyramid, uh, what's crazy is all this money was spent to build this pyramid. And then what happens? They end up shutting it down, you know, time and time again. All these different, uh, you know, disasters were happening there. They shut it down. And now it's apparently a Bass Pro Shop. But I guarantee you the Bass Pro Shop is not using all of the levels that were up to the ritual room. Right, I bet. I believe it. Just an interesting little tidbit. That's incredible. No, that's, imp that's an important story because it shows, it's another example of how Crowley and his ideas seeded the modern world. So you see little bits and pieces of, you know, how people who went back to Crowley adopted, you know, certain symbols and uh, rituals. You know, it's incredible. But here's the... Uh, Here's the thing. This is kind of like one of the more important paragraphs that Crowley wrote, and it explains who Iwas was. He says he always Crowley referenced himself as the Beast 666. So here he's saying the Beast 666 has preferred to let names stand as they are and to proclaim simply that Awas, the solar phallic hermetic Lucifer, 
is his own guardian angel and the devil Satan, or had it, of our particular unit of the starry universe. This serpent, Satan, is not the, and here's the, the classic Luciferian position. This serpent, Satan, is not the enemy of man, but he who made gods of our race, knowing good and evil. So that is actually a very important statement of Crowley. And that's kind of the, one of the hidden elements of Crowley is that he, so he used so much strange jargon. But once you kind of unpack it, you go, oh, this is just straight Satanism that, you know, is just like anything else. He was just a clever writer and kind of concealed a lot of his concepts. Now, t- tell us just a little bit about the numerology of Crowley, because the, the, numerology was a big part of what he did, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely. So he, he wrote, when he wrote a lot of his magical works, he placed them in numerical order based upon numbers. And he believed that you could define the universe through mathematics. So the numbers were all relevant and very important. But to Crowley, probably the prime number is 11. 11 is the number of magic. Like I explained earlier, it's the unity of five and six. Um, it's also referenced in the book of the law as the numbers of those are us. And it also is the number of the letters of the word abrahadabra, which is the word of the aeon. So 11 was very important to Crowley. Also 77, which is uh, this formulation of sexual magic that he used in the OTO. And if you look at his seal of Babylon, it's kind of a unique seven-starred uh, seal that has the 77 in it. And it, you know, with the unification, talks, he talks about their unification of the beast and Babylon and in Crowley, a beast is a man, and Babylon is a representation of women. And he, t- he lifted it right from the book of Revelations. But for him, that unity is a crucial element. And there's actually a ritual of the beast and Babylon conjoined. And you can actually see a depiction of that at the end of Johnny Depp's Ninth Gate movie. Uh, it's a pretty remarkable public display of a ritual. Um, so also 93 was something that was important that he kind of discovered through Kabbalah. Crowley was a Kabbalic master, but one element of the Kabbalah was gematria, which is the meaning of numbers. And he broke down some of the, these words that were important to him, thelema and agape. And he found that they broke down in uh, the Kabbalah or in gematria to 93. So he uh, actually made his whole followers into the word thelemites, people who followed their will. So that's another thing OTO or Crowley followers were will say about themselves. Are you a thelemite? So those numbers are all very, very important, and you'll see them through Crowley, like would, uh, instead of writing his name or signature, he would write 93, 93 all the time as representations of will and agape. So a lot of his followers followed that practice. And I have a, uh, like a, a writing from Jimmy Page in, in my book where he signs at 93, 93, 93, which shows how familiar he is with Crowley and Crowley's kind of uh, writing style and his the meaning of his numbers. And I trace those numbers through to the events of 9-11. Uh, if you look at the 9-11 events in the plains and this massive public ritual in front of two monoliths, uh, you can see the occult ties there. 11, 93, 77, two, those are three of the planes that happened in 9-11. It's hard to believe that they could actually create this ritual with these kind of numerical details, but that's what my argument is. Most people listening right now, they already know 9-11 was an inside job. Um, globalist, working within our government. Um, but w- explain to us, if you could give us like the, the shorthand version of the occult ritual of 9-11, because I think this is actually pretty interesting stuff. And uh, 
I mean, you, you've written on this already. So, and I know we're, we're, you know, we're going back into some of your older work, but if you don't mind, maybe giving us the shorthand version of 9-11 being an occult ritual. Not a problem. I basically, you know, the, the dates themselves, 9-11 is actually when somebody is going to do a ritual on the ground. They actually draw a circle that's nine by 11. The inner circle is nine and 11. So it's a very important, these are very important symbolic numbers. But I believe that the 9-11 itself was a working to facilitate exactly what Crowley said in his book is to create change in accordance with will. That's the real purpose of magic, according to Crowley. And therefore, I believe that the events of 9-11 were an event to facilitate change in according with people's will. And the change that they wanted was massive change in, in, in domestic and foreign policy. And foreign policy that was interested in a more global control that facilitated warfare for benefit and power to control natural resources um, and also to pass things like the Patriot Act and to create those kind of change at home that would uh, solidify control. And also, um, I think that it was a massive insider, just like you said, globalist insider, it's a massive insider where the insiders knew what was happening, but the public had no idea. So it's also kind of this element of secret societies. But the fact that the numbers were involved, um, 11 was the first plane to hit these 11, little 110-story buildings. 11, really, there's another 11 there. Uh, I think shows what it, this kind of ritualized meaning that somebody believes that this numerology is crucial for this kind of action. And even the buildings themselves were broken up into three parts. There's tons of symbolic meaning in the buildings and this strange circle that was in the center called the spherical caryatid. It's just was, um, and that the spherical caryatid is actually brought up and referenced in the movie Fight Club. They actually break it down, but um, there's just tons of symbolic meaning in the, the building. So it, it's just an incredible event, 9-11, the fact that they could have this tie. And that's really why I wrote my first book, Prophet of Evil. Um, the title was Prophet of Evil, 9-11, Aleister Crowley and the New World Order. And I, I tried to make the point, or my general thesis is that all these principles working together work together in the 9-11 event. And if people want to hear more about this, because you've done a great, a great deal of research and breaking this down, obviously you can't break down all the details in a short amount of time. Uh, you said the book was Prophet of Evil. And that's available on your website. And uh, I'm, I'm going to just plug this real quick in case somebody's listening. We'll definitely plug it again. Um, you've, you've already heard it in the intro. You're going to hear it now and you'll hear it again at the end. But occultinvestigations.com. Occultinvestigations.com. If you want to just make a note of that, you definitely want to check it out. Right there, you'll see all of Williams' books. Now, moving on from 9-11, uh, obviously you mentioned that Crowley had some interest in Kabbalah. Correct. Now, I just want to make a point. You've already mentioned um, two of the most foulest symbols in the occult already in our interview, which um, the most powerful satanic symbol in the world is the hexagram. I mean, I've had this validated by people that I knew that got out of the occult that were involved in witchcraft. I mean, you've got the hexagram, you've got the pentagram, you've got others, but the hexagram itself, the hexagram is the most powerful occult symbol. And what's interesting is that the hexagram shows up on the uh, modern state of Israel's flag. And the modern state of Israel, I mean, modern Judaism is a mixture of uh, Kabbalah and Talmudic Judaism. It's true. And I mean, you know, people people always get very uncomfortable when I bring this up because we live in a Zionist run culture. Our churches are, are basically Zionist run nowadays for the most part. Um, and they don't understand the details 
But the hexagram is very powerful, and there's there's never been a godly use for the hexagram. And I guarantee right. you that King David never used the hexagram for anything. Right. Um, and so, so why is it called the Star of David, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, did, did you have some comments on the hexagram? Because you, you briefly mentioned it earlier. Right. I mean, it was used. It's, it was the Star of Sol, the Seal of Solomon. It was used by Solomon when he was doing magical rituals, trying to invoke demons and all this stuff. So... Um, and Crowley himself used it all the time. Six six. It actually can represent six 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 if you break it down. So um, as far as that is concerned, I would qualify that within Judaism, it's not a monolithic uh, group of people. There are a wide variety of different texts. Some people are Torah Jews. Some are Kabbalic. Some are um, you know of all different. There's there's Jews of all. There's a lot of conflict between different strains of Judaism, conservative to liberal to modern. But there's definitely a strong strain of Kabbalic thinking within Judaism. Here in L.A., they have something called the Kabbalah Center that a wide variety of stars go to. You know, they all wear this red, this kind of red string around their wrist. You can tell where they go, whether it's Madonna, Ashton Kutcher. So all these people, and it's a very complex kind of field of study involving the tree of life and all these emanations, but it's pure, it's purely occultism. I mean, Kabbalah is there, there's nothing biblical about the Kabbalah and there never will be. I mean, as a matter of fact, even Jonathan Kahn was referencing, uh, you know, and he's very popular with the evangelical crowd, but Jonathan Kahn, I've got a video of him teaching out of the Kabbalah. He's literally reading a passage out of the Zohar from the pulpit and he was giving credence to it. Yeah. But didn't he, didn't it, didn't it turn out that all of his prophecies of things that were supposed to happen didn't happen? Yeah, well, okay, so I'm with you. Okay, I'm with you on this, William. Uh, matter of fact, I did a whole show exp basically explaining all of this. Um, there's still a lot of good brothers and sisters out there who really do love the Lord, and they still think there might be some truth in what he said. Um, hey, God knows. God knows, but my instinct is telling me that it was, it was, it was a big sham. That's, that's just my, my personal opinion. Well, I didn't think I didn't think much different than what you thought, to be honest with you. So, you know, and I'm not I'm not here to make fun of the guy. By all means, I'm not making fun of him. People get very uptight when I mention his name. But it's true. I mean, the video's all over the place of him teaching right out of the uh, the Zohar. Incredible. Uh, which is the Kabbalah. And people don't understand that there's nothing in that book that was given by God. And and then you have this group of, um, you know, what, what they'll call the Torah Jews. Um, and a good percentage of the quote unquote Torah Jews, which, you know, we believe it's, it's easier to witness to a Torah Jew because you can show them Christ in the Old Testament. But regardless, um, the, the good, the good portion of the Torah Jews that I've encountered, they uh, only interpret the Torah through the use of the Talmud, uh, which is basically written by, by the rabbis of old that were not spirit filled. No, post-Christ rabbis, right? Again, we're dealing with uh, oral tradition from Babylon. You have two versions, one originating in Babylon, one originating in Palestine. Uh, down the line, what happened was it finally went from oral tradition to be written down, and, and now it's a giant library. Uh, I was in a synagogue one time interviewing a rabbi, and I said, what's that case of books over there? I mean, it was like bigger than the Encyclopedia Britannica. And uh, he was like, oh, that's, uh, that's the Talmud. And I was like, oh, you guys use the Talmud? He's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's our holy book. And I said, so do you guys use the Kabbalah too? He says, well, we don't, we don't use it here directly. He said, but it's a very popular book amongst modern Jews. And um, again, I wasn't in there trying to, you know, debate the guy. I just was getting information from him. Incredible, yeah, it's amazing. But yeah, so anyway, the 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 idea of um, Kabbalah and you know, it, it really goes back. It's very popular amongst uh, modern Jews, um, and it was practiced by all types of magicians back in the Middle Ages. But uh, Crowley was a major advocate of the Kabbalah. Um, you see these symbols showing up in the Kabbalah. And it's funny because the Kabbalah actually has 
I mean, influence, literally the Kabbalah has influenced uh, so many different quote unquote new age practices and they're all dealing with forms of magic, whether they want to admit it or not. Yeah, it's remarkable. I think I, I vaguely remember Crowley, Crowley saying the whole foundation of Western magic is the Kabbalah, you know. So he wrote a book on the Kabbalah and all his followers wrote books about the Kabbalah. His real teacher wrote a book on the Kabbalah. So, it, you know, whether it's JFC Fuller or uh, McGregor, Mathers, these guys that were all obsessed with the Kabbalah, A.E. White, a lot of the 19th century occultists all wrote books about the Kabbalah. And here we see it being used in synagogues left and right. I just I think that should should cause people to scratch their heads and say, maybe there's more to modern Judaism than I've been taught. You know, maybe maybe there's a lot more to it than than, you know, people are really discussing. I think it's a very important line of inquiry, no doubt. Luckily, there are people out there and myself included. I've put out a couple episodes breaking down modern Judaism, uh, but it, it, it does go back to um, esoteric practices. Yeah. And they have it here in L.A. They have. Uh, basically like schools or shuls here that are based upon the Talmud. You just drive by Talmud based Jewish study. Bam. You know, that's what they're teaching the kids. The rabbis that I've actually met and spoken with, that's their Bible. That is their holy book. Now, I mean, granted, they may read from the Torah on a, on a Sabbath or Shabbat. They may read a verse or two here, but it's like, it's a ritual. You know, it's just like a Christian, you know, there's, there's pastors that get up and read from the Bible and they don't even know what they're reading because they're not Holy Spirit filled. They're not real men of God. They're literally wolves in sheep's clothing. And it's very important that we go back and say, why do we believe what we believe? We need to know. I mean, you got to know what you believe, but then you need to know why you believe it. And please, ladies and gentlemen, never believe things just because you've been taught them. Always research. And I mean, research is how William Ramsey has put his books together. I mean, we're dealing, you just, you flip through this book and it is documented research. You got bibliographies, you got photos. Um, I, I do want to kind of move us through here because I got, I still have so many things I want to talk to you about. Um, goodness. Um, okay. So we're going to jump around just a little bit, just for the sake of it, because there's so much in your book. Okay. Now you have actually, you mentioned John Carradine in your book. Correct. Tell a little bit about Carradine and, and, and how he was connected to Crowley. And, you know, obviously he had a son. Correct. He had four. He had four kids who all became involved in the movie industry. But uh, he was one involved in the early OTO chapter in Hollywood with one of Crowley's main followers, a guy by the name of Jack Parsons, who really tried to carry on the work of Crowley. And with uh, homosexual advocate Harry Hay, who became really one of the primary movers of, you know, uh, this kind of homosexual revolution in the in the states after kind of adopting kind of Kinsey's uh, material, but Harry Hay actually played organ at the OTO rituals that were off of Hollywood Boulevard back in the day. But Carradine um, was also involved in the Hellfire Club of Hollywood. He was he played Aaron in the Ten Commandments next to Charlton Heston, and he was a very interesting guy. But what made him also interesting was that he had four kids. And the Carradine children kind of carried on his his involvement in film. And it's really kind of a remarkable story of of how, you know, David Carradine became involved in uh, the films of he actually was almost involved in Dune, but he was involved in all of the Quentin Tarantino films. So this guy who, you know, this character who also was in uh, the early kind of uh what is it? The not the karate movies. The, what was? Yep, Kung Fu the Legend. Kung Fu. Thank you. Yeah. So you see this kind of uh, these people who knew, and I've read some. I've seen some of 
Tarantino's movies, and they know occult numerology in those two. So it's it's really a fascinating uh, element of Crowley and how you know he's had an effect on people and their children. You mentioned Parsons, and it, you know it's so hard to mention Parsons without talking about him. I mean, <laughs> I mean, goodness gracious, Jack Parsons. Um, well, Parsons was a guy who grew up in um, a really nice part of Pasadena. He came from uh, money. He grew up on Orange Grove, which is kind of the main street in Pasadena. Back in the day, they had these huge mansions on multiple acres, and he had he was the uh, beneficiary of one of these mansions on Orange Grove, and he uh, said he invoked Satan at the age of 13. He said he, he was afraid, and <clears throat> Satan asked, will you fail again? He said, I will not fail. So he became a really very hardened um, Thelemite, really a follower of Crowley. Crowley considered Parsons his most important follower, and he became the head of the OTO chapter in Los Angeles. And he really... Um, you know, did all the rituals. He was very serious. He knew people who knew Crowley. He uh, studied the book of the law. And at one point, he was actually a very important founding member of this rocketry lab that take, took place, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. A lot of people know that story. But he was he was uh, an early kind of adventure where he um, was doing all kinds of uh, jet <coughs> jet experiments with his buddy with one of his buddies in Pasadena. But he came upon, he was he was also a friend of Grady McMurtry who knew Crowley, but he came upon L. Ron Hubbard at some point in uh, the late 40s after the war. And he and Hubbard were involved in all kinds of occult rituals. And one of the occult rituals they know is the Babylon working, where they tried to basically give birth to a homonucleus, this kind of artificial human being. And they did all kinds of rituals out there and... Uh, it was basically something that was based upon Crowley's eighth degree of the OTO rituals on the secret marriages of gods and men. And this human form, uh, you know, they, they tried to, to, to bring it to law. And, uh, you know, it was intended to change. the. Also, the, the, one of the rituals that they were doing were to change, you know, the whole cosmology of the world. So um, at some point, you know, after 1946, Hubbard and Parsons broke up in 1948. Hubbard started Dianetics, and in 1950 Scientology. And uh, so this this kind of text, you know, Parsons himself said that he uh, was kind of a follow. He actually created something called Lieber 49, intended to be the fourth chapter of Aleister Crowley's Book of the Law, uh, which is very interesting. So he had pretty intense uh, aspirations to be a follower of Crowley and to sit sit upon the you know, throne of the beach, beast, so to speak. And, uh, you know, that's basically was him. He, he accidentally blew himself up in an accident in his house in 1952. So he died in 1937. Now, the information that he was, uh, obviously Parsons was an extremely brilliant man. He had a lot of science that he was skilled in. And, and I, I, you know, I, it's hard for me to talk about Parsons without mentioning fallen angel technology, because we're dealing with a man who was practicing magic, a man who was channeling, who was in communication with the spirit world. And the, I mean, he, he had information that would come to him in these channeling sessions and you would see him turn around and use that channeled knowledge in some of his projects. A lot of people don't understand. I mean, he was, he, he's considered a mastermind of this rocket technology. And Parsons was very well connected, extremely well connected. 
But this whole this Babylon rising, basically, and and correct me if I'm wrong here, but we're dealing with a ritual to try to, uh, and many people speculate and say that they were trying to to bring about the Antichrist. Um, But the idea was there was a satanic ritual that took place in the desert where uh, a woman was impregnated, or they were trying to impregnate this woman, but obviously they were trying to, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out here, but the, the Parsons was the one who was fathering the child, correct? I believe so. So they were, they were doing all kinds of sex magical rituals with this woman by the name of Marjorie Cameron. But somebody was trying to impregnate her. They, they had a group of people out there doing rituals, and the idea was that the impregnator, the father, would actually be somebody who was at the time, possessed by uh, a demon spirit. And that would have somehow, in their mind, would have created some type of a Nephilim hybrid. But obviously, that's not what was going on in in Genesis chapter 6. We actually had real fallen angels having sex with women, creating real hybrids. So the project was a failure. Uh, from, From all my research, obviously they failed. I mean, if they were trying to bring about the Antichrist, because the Antichrist was not brought forth in that ritual. Right, that's no doubt. I mean, he he took upon himself the idea of the Antichrist or Valerian. So he be, he took the oath of Antichrist uh, sometime in 1947 and wrote about it. He wrote something called the Manifesto of the Antichrist, which starts off with, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. So it was 1949 that he became, he said he was going to become the Antichrist and end, end the pretense and lying hypocrisy of Christianity. Right, right. Now, uh, what was the connection there with uh, theosophy? Well, the theosophists were Helena Blavatsky, and Crowley kind of admired her. He actually used one of her writings in his in his in his teachings, um, the, the voice of the, uh, the voice of the silence. But I don't think that they were really that attached to Blavatsky as much as maybe John Dee or uh, Edward Gid Kelly and their kind of Enochian workings. But I think maybe Parsons, you know, had learned from some other people before hitting the OTO. I think what he did is he was interested in Marxism. He was involved in the Theosophical Society. He also, I think what he did, okay. So in the 30s, this guy, there was the Theosophical Society by a guy, I think his name was Leadbeater, and they created this world teacher out of India. He was a uh, high-class guy by the name of Jiddo Krishnamurti, and he was from India. He was a uh, Brahmin, so he was this very um, rich guy, or he's from the top class in, in India, and they made him the world teacher. He eventually didn't like the title of world teacher. Crowley uh, fought to become the world teacher after they proclaimed this guy, Jiddo Krishnamurti, to be the world teacher, and there's writings of Crowley in Prophet of Evil, where he says, I'm the world teacher, he sends out all this stuff, um, but Jiddo Krishnamurti like many of other people attached or knew, knew Crowley, ended up in Los Angeles. He was in a city called Oi, which is kind of uh, on the way north from San Francisco towards Santa Barbara. And Parsons would go up to Oi to sit at the foot of Krishnamurti and listen to his lectures. So uh, I think, you know, it shows that Parsons had a taste for the kind of new age occult teachings even before he he, he settled on the OTO. Well, it's, just, it's all about power and magic. I mean, people, they, they get a taste of magic. They realize that there's reality to it. You're actually crossing over and making communication with these other entities. And before you know it, it, it it's like a drug addiction. And people are, that's why when you go to a new age bookstore, you've got all these different writers, all these different sects, all these different beliefs. But people are so hungry for the supernatural that they're wanting to tap into any area. It's like, how many irons can you have in a fire? 
And that's what the New Age movement is. It's just, in my opinion, it's a conglomeration of all these occult practices that have been recorded over the years. And people just, they grab at it because they want power, because they're denying the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Yes. I think that, the, I think that they, there is an undercurrent in the New Age of this idea that Crowley codified of freedom, freedom to choose what you want instead of adhering to the doctrines of the gospel. Um, you can kind of pick and choose. So people can become Wiccans or they can become OTO members or they can become yoga fanatics who do, you know, Kundalini working. So there's all kinds of things that people can do. And a lot, you know, Crowley encouraged people to do all of them. So uh, I do think the new age definitely has that kind of ethos in it. Absolutely. Now, before we move into the last segment of the show here, um, you had mentioned earlier about Loch Ness. And uh, Crowley owned his his one of his mansions right there, and uh, that that was at the same location where Led Zeppelin had bought the mansion. And I just there's so much there's a lot of theories about what took place in that area. Why would Crowley have chosen that area uh, to perform magic? I mean, we, like you said, we've got the, the Loch Ness monster stories from that area. Um, what what are some of the the principalities or what you know some of the events that have happened in that area? Uh, just before we move into the second hour. Uh, obviously, we'll get into some of the occult murders that are tied back to this practice with Crowley. But what, what can you tell us about Loch Ness? Well, you know, it was an interesting choice for him because it was very far out of the way from his usual haunts in southern England. So to go all the way north to a very far kind of semi-uninhabited area was unusual for Crowley. But uh, he said that he needed a place where he couldn't be bothered. And, and the layout of the uh, manor was such that he had a lot of open space. He said that. You know, when he did his ritual up there, the Abermelon ritual, the demons connected with the ritual cannot wait to be invoked. They come on sot. So there were spirits that afflicted nearby residents, uh, workmen who uh, worked at the house attacked Crowley and had to be restrained in the cellar. Um, another housekeeper went on a three-day drinking binge and tried to kill his wife. Um, he said that he was, when he was consecrating talismans, the lodge and terrace of the house became peopled with shadowy shapes, substantial as a rule to be almost opaque. Um, so he he had a lot of uh, uh, events, a lot of uh, kind of ghost sightings that happened after he did these rituals. What are your thoughts on the Loch Ness Monster? I mean, you think we're dealing with like a cryptid possibly, possibly just a, a fish story that people have told for years, maybe a, what people might call a prehistoric animal that never died off. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I've thought about it for a long time. I don't feel like there is... Um, I don't feel like there is actually an animal in there. I think that it's kind of like Bigfoot. There's a lot of people that believe that Bigfoot is a demonic manifestation. I know that sounds wild to some people, but it's it's definitely one of the the popular theories out there. Well, I, you know, I would I would I could I could find that believable to be that there are you know things in the woods that go back through prehistory. People have always said the woods are you know haunted or inhabited with other beings, and so I it wouldn't be a complete surprise to me. If that was the case, I do think that there are people in these, you know, environments in whether it's UFOs, Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster who are making up stories for fun or profit. So. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people, they, they really like to exploit these topics. And then when you have a real researcher that comes out who actually wants to look into these things from a, you know, a, a, a spiritual standpoint with with the Bible being the lens, um, they get they pretty much get written off because. They say, well, everyone's just a hoaxer. Um, but yeah, I think that there's definitely some some possibility there. I think the Loch Ness Monster is definitely falling into that realm of possibility. 
of some type of a demonic manifestation because we are seeing things like this uh, manifesting on Indian land. Uh, not when I say like this, I don't mean like the Loch Ness monster, but the the general idea of something that shows up and then disappears. Right. So I mean, I, I definitely think it's um, all things considered. Uh, you know, kind of looking into the idea that Loch Ness is an area where there's a lot of haunting, a lot of demonic activity. So just want to throw it in there. It's on a ley line as well, which are these supposedly spiritual uh, charge lines that circumnavigate the globe. And occultists, when they plot their, you know, where they want to stay, like to plot them on a ley line. And my understanding is that Boleskine is on one. And you're dealing with the pyramids, you're dealing with uh, some of the megalithic structures um, of thousands of years old, uh, before they had telescopes like we have today, before we had the modern day technology, people were building, you know, and I believe a lot of these megalithic structures were built by the Nephilim. Uh, the giants were definitely involved in this, um, but they had knowledge of the ley lines thousands of years ago. Now, whether there's any truth to the, the power involved in the ley lines, that's still up for debate. But we do know that the occult really believes that the ley lines are very important in their rituals and their placement. So, yeah, I think that's a very interesting point. Uh, even some of these, quote unquote, uh, Illuminati sacrifices uh, of people in Hollywood. Uh, there's even been people breaking down the ley lines that 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 ritual took place on. I mean, I think if you're an occultist, you have to you have to do things for the most power and the most occult meaning. So that's why they use ley lines and numerology and dates. It's always the same. It's, you know, you have to do it. That's that's kind of their religion. Now, here's a question for you. And uh, obviously, we, we want to talk about some of the occult murders that are tied into this type of magic. But before that, and if we can't if we can't really break this down in a short time, we can we can hit it on another broadcast. But just thinking about Hollywood, I know you've done a great deal of research on Hollywood. Uh, I have my, my, my buddy and colleague, Michael Herr. He's done a lot of research here as well. Uh, there is there are multiple secret societies in Hollywood. We know this, but there are very elite groups. And according to many researchers, they say there is the most elite of the elite groups in Hollywood where all of the who's who are part of this group. It's very much uh, like what uh, what Kubrick uh, had depicted in Eyes Wide Shut. Um, but we're not just dealing with sex parties and, and sex magic rituals. We're dealing with blood sacrifice. I think that. Um, there are, in my research, there are significant A-list people who are interested in Crowley and magic. And I don't know what their groups are. Like, I know a guy like Marilyn Manson says he's affiliated with the OTO. He's affiliated with the Process Church. And the Process Church is really probably one of the, um, and, in, and I've written about the Process Church who were inspired by Crowley. So I think that Crowley still lives on, you know, and I know that um, people in the Manson family studied Crowley. That was an admission by uh, Susan Atkins, who also knew Anton LaVey. So in as much as what's going on behind the doors in Hollywood, I hear rumors. I know that there were, you know, like the Beach Boys were involved in a kind of hellfire club. Um, you know, the, the whole notion Crowley's idea of do what thou wilt actually comes through the hellfire clubs of England going back even to France. But um, so I think that those kind of uh, environments are still in Hollywood. And I do believe that a lot of these people are connected. A lot of the, the top people, I don't, I personally don't know. I just hear rumors. Absolutely. And it, it's okay to speculate sometimes as long as we're telling people, hey, we're speculating here, or this is my opinion. Um, I, I will say this last tidbit, because you've mentioned the Hellfire Club more than once now. Um, a lot of people, they they hear that, you know, they're like, oh, well, it's just some modern, you know, modern cult. 
But like you said, it goes back to the old world. And even even some of our founding fathers are on record as being members of the Hellfire Club. Benjamin Franklin. Franklin, uh, Yeah. Franklin, major player there. I mean, we're talking about sodomite rituals, underground sodomite rituals. Um, And you know what? We've probably just made this show uh, 17 and up. But since it it did get brought up, um, Crowley was a proliferator of sex magic. This is not an opinion. Yes. Part of sex magic, and I've mentioned this on the Canary Cry radio show, sodomy is part of sex magic. Apparently, sodomy is one of the most potent forms of sex magic. Yeah, I would say Crowley thought sodomy was the gateway to hell. So that was, for him, you know, the most profane thing you could do. And this is now a revolution in America. I, I bring this up because, and I know we got to move on here, but you mentioned the, the homosexual revolution basically uh, branching off, uh, was it Kinsey? What, what? No, it was Kinsey to Hay. So, so Kinsey himself was interested in Crowley. He wanted Crowley's diaries, and he traveled to Crowley's Abbey of Philema with filmmaker Kenneth Anger, who was an OTO member. And so he had a late uh, interest in Crowley, and he shared some of Crowley's sexual perversion. Um, but then inspired by Kinsey was Harry Hay, who uh, was a founder of what was called the Mattachine Society, which was a homosexual secret society in the 40s. And it kind of avalanche and snowballed into the sexual revolution of the 60s and the gay rights movement. Harry Hay was a long term member of the gay rights movement. And uh, and then and then to Lambla. So it was it got very disgusting. From my research, it was never about people's rights to love who they want to love. Sodomy was not about love. Sodomy was about sexual ritual magic. And the fact that it was always considered a sacred form of religion, uh, the fact that it's been now broken out as uh, I mean, we've been conditioned in our culture that it, it's about loving who you love and it's about human rights. But people don't realize that when they participate in an act of sodomy, they're not only does God hate it, but they're actually participating in a very high ranking form of sexual satanic magic. Yes. Even, even if they don't realize it. And, and I know people are listening right now. They've got a gay relative or a gay you know, friend here or there, whatever. But. Sodomy goes back to black magic. There's no ifs, ands, or, or buts about it. Even in Babylon, sodomy was used. Um, we have a rich history of this. So now we have this sexual revolution, this homosexual revolution taking over America, taking over all these different nations of the world, uh, maybe except for Russia. I know Russia has stood up against it. But regardless, we're not just dealing with, with people's rights here. We're dealing with sex magic. And this is uh, part of the Illuminati's plan was to to literally chip away at the family unit. They wanted to destroy the family unit and that's what's happening with this. So I just want to throw that out there because you did mention uh, the homosexual revolution earlier. I, I don't think you used that terminology, but I knew what you were referring to. Um, it all goes back to sex magic, and now it's being proliferated and practiced, and, and people are being practically given awards for saying that they're gay. You know, it's like, well, they're gay. They deserve special treatment. And uh, again, I'm not, I'm not here to attack anybody. I'm just stating the facts about where this came from. Yeah, you can see that it branched. The homosexual movement branches off from OTO Crowleyism and then, you know, Crowley himself was that was kind of his preferred sexual activity was homosexual male sex. Right before they were in the desert in, in Algeria, um, like I said, with the demon Coronas on the, the thing they did was perform sex magic of that type. Mm. Now, I. I know it's unbelievable. Some people are hearing this. They're like, wow, this is just too much, too much information. And I know we have kids that listen, a lot of kids that tune in with their parents. Um, but I've, sometimes we just have to we have to hit these things when they come into conversation, because if it gets slipped in there, well, we need to go ahead and explain it. So I wanted to do that. I'm glad we did. 
Uh, now, in the remainder of our time together, William, um, we are still pulling from from your latest book, Children of the Beast. Let's talk about some of the occult crimes. And, and I know we don't have time to go through a lot of them, but we're going to try to break down one or two of them, uh, how they tie back into this magic, how these people were influenced by Crowley. And uh, for people who, who might be on the fence about this topic, you need to understand that blood ritual, human sacrifice, has always been at the pinnacle of satanic worship and, and all types of occult means. So I think it's really, it should not come across as a shocker that these satanic crimes, these occult crimes, uh, are in fact occult. Some people are going to tell you, oh, well, William, you're just, you know, you're, you're trying to pin this as something it's not. Well, no, this is very much real. And if you take the time to look into William's work, you're going to see that he has documented this thoroughly. Well, I think one of the interesting ones that took place in the States was a guy who called himself the Beast, kind of like Crowley. His name was John Pazuzu Illa Allegrad Lawson. And he lived in Clemens, uh, kind of north of Winston-Salem in North Carolina. But he was found with, uh, in 2014, fairly recently, with two dead bodies in the back of his house. And uh, he was living with his two girls as well. But it was, turned out that he was a practicing Satanist who performed animal sacrifices and satanic rituals. Uh, once a month, on the full moon, he would sacrifice a rabbit and eat its heart. And he supposedly, he called it the dark moon ritual. He supposedly filed down his teeth. There's no pictures of him showing his teeth, but that was rumored to be what Crowley did as well, is filed his teeth down into points. Um, so this guy, on the outside of his house, he had evil will triumph. And uh, he basically lived in a filthy house that they eventually tore down. They raised the entire house. But he had tattoos all over his body. He called himself Pazuzu-like, the demon from The Exorcist, and uh, he tattooed his face. But it's a remarkable case just to show that this guy, you know, he referred, like I said, he referred to himself as the beast, but he would write in Arabic uh, that somebody interpreted that this is the home of Satan. Uh, he, would, he would write in Arabic in front of his house. So I have pictures of him, what happened before he started practicing black magic, but he had pictures of Crowley on his walls and... Uh, it's just a remarkable case. He ended up dying in jail in October 28th of 2015. He was found in a pool of blood, but uh, he was rumored to have killed two other prostitutes as well. So, you know, these people who are into black magic and get caught up in this kind of awful, you know, uh, awful things. He, he defined himself as a mix of Charles Manson, Anton LaVey, and Aleister Crowley. So it's... Uh, it's really quite something else that this would actually happen in the States. So these things do happen. Now with Manson, uh, obviously Manson was a follower of Crowley. I mean, there, I mean, and, and there's ties between Manson and the Beach Boys. Well, they have a, I, I covered in my book, there's what's called is the solar OTO controversy. There was a, an OTO chapter that was in Los Angeles that Manson would hang out in. And he was also affiliated with, there's one writer who says that he was kind of a mid-ranking member of the Process Church who was an offshoot of Scientology, which was inspired by Crowleyism and the OTO. Um, so, you know, it's uh, Manson himself definitely has a, an occult pedigree. And so he was basically just continuing the, the the type of magic that Crowley was doing. And now some people who might not even realize that they're practicing Crowleyan magic, they're just basically following in the footsteps of Manson. It's like it's an offshoot. Yeah, I think so. I think that the Manson family is an offshoot of the family that they talk about in the process, which is an offshoot of Scientology, which is an offshoot of Parsons and Crowley's magic. So you can see this kind of line of ideology that that goes through these people 
you know, tracing back to Crowley with very solid connections back to Crowley. It's remarkable. Dealing with John Lawson, um, you said that he started off by doing animal sacrifice and he was doing it on the full moon. Uh, and then eventually he went from animal sacrifice to human sacrifice. That's what it looks like. I mean, it looks like he took these people out and uh, killed them, you know. So, you know, he called his house the house of devil worshippers. So did he have a following? Uh, not to my knowledge, but there were other people who talked about him. They knew him very well. They said he was very clever and, uh, you know, that he was a heavy duty um, drug user. And he said that the biggest higher rush that he got was eating a still beating heart of an animal he freshly killed. And it was weird. I mean, this was a guy, if you looked at him, he looked like a little, you know, kind of preppy at one point. But I think he he was a real monster. He and his girlfriend would choke his mother out. So basically choke her till when she passed out. So he's a real, he turned into a real monster. Satanism turned him into a monster. Start playing with demons. You're going to get hurt. He said they worshiped, he worshiped evil gods. That was his, that was his religion. Now I do want to, I do want to touch on one other thing. I know I'm kind of throwing a wild card in there, but uh, you mentioned Kenneth Anger and I think people don't realize, um, Metallica. And I know some people are going to laugh because they say, Oh, Metallica is just a harmless rock band. Um, they're not harmless by any means. Metallica has very much occult ties, but they, they had an album called Saint Anger. And from my research, they are referencing back to Kenneth Anger as being a saint, a saint in their religion. Interesting. I never knew that. Well, Kenneth Anger is a very interesting guy. He's a filmmaker, one of the earlier filmmakers. He inspired a lot of later filmmakers. He, Martin Scorsese said that he was an inspiration. What he did is uh, he was one of the first people to put music over his videos and just kind of have the music running. It kind of was the uh, the beginning of music videos, and Scorsese used that same style in his films. And the thing about Anger is he adopted uh, an interest in Crowley from a very early age. So he traveled to the Abbey of Thelema with, Alfred, uh, with Kinsey, the kind of founder of the sex revolution, and he actually, Kinsey, um, filmed some of the sexual activity of Kenneth Anger for his perverted... Um, repository of sexual, you know, material. But Anger had tons of friends who were friends with Crowley, a girl by the name of Wolf who, who was with Crowley in the Abbey of Thelema and people who knew Crowley. And so Anger really sought out a lot of these people. He was in San Francisco right at the time that the Manson family was in San Francisco. He actually lived with Bobby Bouzelay, who was one of the, uh, first murderers in the Manson family. He went actually to jail for the murder of Gary Hinman. Um, he was very close friends, and, and Boozley actually did some of the writing for uh, Kenneth Anger's film, Lucifer Rising. And so Kenneth Anger actually films public rituals of, uh, you know, Crowley material in some of his films, and some of them are direct rituals of Crowley material. And he's friends with the Rolling Stones. Um, he was at Altamont filming. He just was in all these other places, with these, you know, culturally important people. There's pictures of him with Anton LaVey. And he described himself as a warlock who was uh, promoting Aleister Crowley. And he's actually still alive, surprisingly. If you think he's in his late 80s or early 90s, he lives in Los Angeles. And he's actually was in a video with James Franco. James Franco uh, is a pretty well-known celebrity who admires, you know, uh, Kenneth Anger and actually did a video with him called Love in the Old Days basically performing a ritual in a strip joint where, you know, it, there's a lot of deep meaning. They put these animal heads on and dance around. And Kenneth Anger has influenced Sean 
Lennon, the son of John Lennon. And, you know, it's just a remarkable cultural influence, this guy, Kenneth Anger, um, promoting black magic. It's unbelievable because we see these families, uh, these families of occult practicers, and it's like this heritage of demonic religion gets passed down and passed down, and people are continually connected because of their bloodline. I mean, celebrities, we see it, and obviously there's, there's obviously people who, who do die off and don't have children, but I mean, these, some of these, some of the biggest celebrities, they're, they're literally living up to their demonic heritage from their, from their fathers and their grandfathers. It blows my mind. And, and now, you mentioned about the OTO coming from uh, Germany. And right. obviously, uh, the, the Skull and Bone Society, that also originates back. Um, in Germany, least, right? Exactly, yeah. Germany. It's the Order of the Death Set. And we're dealing with these Nazi death cults. I mean, we go back to Nazi Germany, we have the Vril Society. Uh, we've got all types of these Nazi death cults. Cool. Exactly. The Thule Society, the Vril Society, uh, which you're dealing with like the inner circle of that. And we're dealing with UFO religion. They were literally channeling. I mean, they're channeling these aliens. Yeah. I mean, it's a, incredible. You, I wrote and you can read that part of my book where I compare Crowley to Hitler. And they basically have the same ideology and they read the same books. Hitler was reading a book called Magic Theory and Practice. It's remarkable. You know, these guys have the same yeah, ideological progeny. I mean, it's incredible, really. And, you know, so Crowley was this ideologue, and Hitler was a kind of a political Crowley in a lot of ways. Same doctrines. It's just unbelievable. The dots are so easy to connect once we start digging. And some Christians might not understand why we want to talk about Crowley and why we want to do these types of research projects, because it helps us understand the times better. It helps us understand uh, the spiritual warfare that's going on. And again, you know, Paul says we're not wrestling with flesh and blood. We're wrestling with principalities, spiritual wickedness, and high places. And what we're seeing here is that these people are just literally puppets being driven and operated by demons. And, you know, it, I think it's it's like the Bible says, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. If you know this stuff, then you can see it coming. It's about being on the wall and having a, a far thing. If somebody starts talking about do what thou wilt or I like Crowley, then you know this is trouble. You know, a lot of these people who believe in these doctrines do what thou wilt. It's a very selfish doctrine. They don't think about other people. I'm doing what I want. Um, you know, it's it's an almost direct, if not straight on direct, contra- contradiction to the the tenets of the gospel and the tenets that Christ talked about. Exactly. So it's very important to see, and you know, you can you can take Crowley back even farther beyond Crowley if you want to Eliphas Levy and back to everything that happens in the Old Testament with these wicked people. You sacrifice children, have sex cults. So this kind of strain goes all the way back to the beginning of time. And, you know, and Crowley is just a manifestation that is what's taking place in our modern age that other people have relied upon. So and he had, he had the money and the following to where he was able to. That, that's the reason we know who he is, yes. because he had the money, the power, the following where he was able to leave behind a demonic legacy. I mean, yes. there's people out there, like you said, a lot of these people who've committed these murders, they're nobodies. They, they've just followed his teachings. But Crow, uh, Crowley did leave behind this this major legacy of, of demonic activity. Uh, I'll, I'll make this other statement as well. You know, when you're dealing with the Freemasons, you're dealing, you know, you find out that there's a guy, uh, Pike. Pike is considered the, the modern day father of Freemasonry, uh, at least in America. But what we're dealing with is Crowley would be like the modern day father of black magic. I mean, that's yes. how big he is. It's hard to talk about these things without getting into Crowley. Now, yeah. I know we don't have like a ton of time left, but uh, what was the other case you wanted to break down for us? Give us the basics of, of one of the cases you've broken down in Children of the Beast. 
Well, it's a very interesting case that took place in Britain. It was a uh, cult that was based upon Aleister Crowley. And it was uh, this guy by the name of Colin Bailey created kind of a cult that uh, enslaved women, that there was all kinds of things that happened there where they would write, he would read out of the Book of the Law saying every man and woman is a star. And it was uh, incredibly perverse. There was all kinds of Egyptian kind of symbolism and gods in the house. And uh, it was it was something that was covered in a, in a book by the name of Devil on the Doorstep, My Escape from a Satanic Sex Cult. And it just was shows the perversion that was advocated by Crowley and how people who go back to his teachings can ruin all these people's lives. Like this girl was horrifically abused. I mean, I don't want to go into the details about it, but it was just like awful what this guy Bately did. Um, but they had reading, instead of going to church, they would have Sundays where they would read from the book of the law. And there were 17 members. And that was kind of what Bailey would do. So they were kind of a strange group within this, this city of uh, England, and everybody knew it. But when the guy finally got sentenced and went to jail, you know, the judge said that you set yourself up as the ruler of a sick little kingdom surrounded by women who danced as your willing attendants. You became their master and formed a community with the community involving child abuse, rape, and prostitution. So um, he says you have, the judge finished by saying, you have fully lived up to the ideals of your mentor, Alistair Crowley. You used the occult to further your excesses, and you took cruel delight in your depravity. So uh, it just shows that the judge knew at the end that his, his interest in Alistair Crowley ended up with the this kind of sickening, uh, environment that this guy had with these women and children. It was just, it's really awful. These things are going around everywhere. I mean, people don't understand that this is the type of stuff that is filling our modern world and it goes back to ancient practices. And I mean, Halloween is one of those days of the year where satanic activity in the public is running rampant. I mean, there's all types of occult crimes that take place on Halloween. They don't call it devil's night for nothing. I mean, even uh, the, the night leading up to Halloween and even the night after different people still call that devil's night because the crimes are continuing to take place. But just because it's not Halloween doesn't mean that these things aren't going on. I mean, these things are going on. They have so many different dates on the satanic calendar where they have to perform rituals. Right. It's unbelievable. Now I know we're, we're almost out of time here, but I just want to make a point here. You started off your book with three verses that you've pulled. And I believe you're using the King James Bible here. Correct. That's what we use here at the fourth watch. But you started off with Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12. I'm just going to read this real quick. There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination or an observer of times, or an enchanter or a witch, or a charmer or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12. Tell us why you chose to use that to open your book. I think that it just set the, the stage for what was happening in the research that I put into the book, that so many of these people are enchanters or witches or consult with familiar spirits. So I just wanted people to know my position from the very beginning that I'm not a proponent of these people. I'm a person who's exposing them, something completely different. So... Somebody may see your book in a bookstore and they, they see the cover and they see Alistair Crowley with the B666 on his forehead. Yeah. And then they open the cover and they realize, oh, wow, this is a, a book written from a Christian perspective. 
Definitely. Definitely a Christian perspective. But I think it's an important book. I think these studies of these evil people are important to so you have knowledge of them. Because a lot of them come as angels of light in a lot of ways. Crowley, if you look at his history, when he would meet somebody new, at times he would just talk about, you know, angels and things like that. They didn't know the sinister background of these people. And I think that if they can be exposed, the damage they can do is minimized. You know, if not, they can't do it. And people aren't going to be as shocked when they realize. It's like if, if people can go ahead and learn these things now, uh, they're not going to be nearly as shocked uh, as the end time continues to unfold because we will be seeing more and more of these things. And look, just because you've covered all of these murders in your book and, and how they're all uh, ties to occult practices, these are just the people that got caught. Right. You know, people don't understand that even in our at the highest levels of our federal government, these same types of satanic blood rituals are taking place. I mean, that people even believe that at Bohemian Grove, that the actual the cremation of care ritual is not actually done in effigy. People, there are very solid researchers that believe that they have always sacrificed a human at Bohemian Grove every year. And there's even pictures from the I think it's the 30s that show they used to take a black man and put the black man on the altar. I've seen the pictures, and these are not Photoshop pictures. Spiritual wickedness in high places, absolutely. Exactly. And that's one of the other verses that you started your book with, Ephesians 6.12. We've already referenced this earlier. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You've put that in your book. And the other verse that you put here, I think this is so powerful because people like you and I, we get attacked on a regular basis because we do expose things. And people are always asking, well, you know, you know, why are you doing that? You have no right to do that as a Christian. But actually, I'm so glad you put Ephesians 5.11 here. And I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read this. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, but rather expose them. So we're not just commanded in God's word. We're not just commanded to flee from these things. We're actually commanded to expose them. You see, most of the modern church has a hard time with this. You start exposing wickedness and, and unfortunately for us, uh, William, we, we oftentimes have to expose things that are taking place in the church with false teachers. It's all, it all goes back to wickedness, spiritual wickedness in high places. It's not the man that we're wrestling with. It's not that, that flesh suit that we're wrestling with. We're wrestling with the demons, the spiritual wickedness in high places that are causing mankind to do the things they're doing in these last days. So I love that you put that in there because that is our command, not only flee from these things, but as born-again followers of Jesus Christ, we have to expose these things. Amen. So it's very, very awesome to see that you started your book out. Before you even get into the meat of the book, you start off with the Word of God and, and very powerful passages, really, that go ahead and just let everybody know you're about to get into some heavy stuff tonight as you read this book. Tonight, we have been talking about Children of the Beast. Alistair Crowley's Shadow Over Humanity, written by William Ramsey, and we've been joined by William tonight as well. Uh, one more time, I want to let everybody know William's website is occultinvestigations.com. Uh, William's written a book called Abomination. Uh, what's a brief synopsis uh, on Abomination, William? It's about the satanic influence upon the West Memphis Three murders that happened in uh, Memphis in 1993. So we've got Abomination there. Obviously, that's a book that you could probably talk for hours on. We've got Children of the Beast, Aleister Crowley's Shadow Over Humanity, and then we also have the book you referenced earlier in the show, which is Prophet of Evil, Aleister Crowley, 9-11, and the New World Order. Um, all three of these books are available on your website. 
1999. And you told me before we started that people can find your books in various places, but you would prefer that they order them from your website. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot better for me if you order from the website. So I'd appreciate it. But you can find Kindle versions of my first two books and and hard copies at Amazon as well. Awesome. And uh, do you do personalized copies for people? Are you able to do that? Absolutely. So every book that comes that uh, you buy at a cold investigations, I will give you a signed copy. Well, unfortunately, you didn't keep up to your end of the bargain, buddy. Yours wasn't signed. It was signed, but you didn't, you didn't make it out to Justin fall. It's okay. It's okay. I'm going to forgive you this time. (laughs) The next ones you will have signed. I promise. Awesome. Yeah. I'm hoping to get a copy of abomination. Man, this, that's one of the stories that is always just, oh, it's blown my mind. The the whole West Memphis. It's very strange in a lot of ways because it involves, um, PR It involves the capacity of, uh, experts to shape cases. And it's really, um, remarkable in a lot of ways. It has a very important themes for our day about uh, media manipulation, the power of public relations, and and the involvement of cold in criminal activities. So it's awesome. Now tell us uh, for everybody listening who may want to check out, you've got some uh, some free resources that you've put up on YouTube. Tell us about your YouTube channel real quick. Yeah, so my YouTube channel has tons of uh, videos about uh, cult crimes and the West Memphis Three. That's at a cold investigations at YouTube. I also am pretty active on Facebook. If you want to check out William Ramsey, I have tons of information on my timeline and uh, some great articles, too, about uh, the West Memphis Three and uh, some stuff from Children of the Beast. So please go take a look at that. Awesome. You can find him on my friends list on Facebook. If you're my friend, if you're not my friend, you should be. Uh, William Ramsey, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the fourth watch. And once again, check out occultinvestigations.com. Check out his YouTube. Find him on Facebook. Again, William, looking forward to talking with you in the future. So much to talk about. You've done some great work here, and uh, you're in our prayers. And uh, just thanks again, man. God bless you, brother. Thank you. God bless you, too. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good night. All right, you too. Take care. Well, that was awesome, and I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. We covered quite a bit of dark information tonight, and I'd like to move us into some edification now in the Word of God. Research is very important, but it's even more important to get into the Bible for the renewing of our minds and spirit. I've been studying the book of James recently, and it's such a powerful text. One thing the Lord has been showing me over the years of Bible study is that we don't just read the Word, but that we worship in it, and that we pray it over our lives as we're being led by the Holy Ghost. I found myself praying through the book of James recently as I study. And tonight I want to delve into the first chapter with you all, And we'll be working our way through the first eight verses of chapter one this week, and we'll be continuing this study in weeks to come. But I want to start with a little background on James and this particular letter. The author identifies himself as James, chapter one, verse one. It's most probable that he was the half-brother of Jesus, and he was a leader of the Jerusalem council. You can read about this in Acts chapter 15. Four men in the New Testament have this name, James. But the author of this letter could not have been the Apostle James because he died too early to have written this. The other two men named James had neither the stature nor the influence that the writer of this letter had. James was one of several brothers of Christ, probably the oldest because he had his name at the top of the list in Matthew 13:55. Now, at first, he did not believe in Jesus and he even misunderstood his mission. John chapter 7 verses 2 through 5. Later, he became a very prominent man in the church. We see that James was one of the select people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. 
Paul referred to James as a pillar of the church, Galatians 2.9. Paul, on his first post-conversion visit to Jerusalem, went to see James, Galatians 1.19. Paul did the same thing on his last visit. You can read about that in Acts 21.18. When Peter was rescued from prison, he told his friends that they needed to go and tell James, Acts 12.17. And once again, I want to remind you all that James was a leader in the important council of Jerusalem in Acts 15.13. This was a major meeting where the Jews discussed what would be expected of the Gentile believers. If you remember, many of the Jews struggled with understanding grace, as they had been living under the law for so long. And many Jews tried to force the law upon new Gentile converts. But we see that the council was held, and it was guided by the Holy Ghost. And they dealt with these matters concerning the law and grace. Now, that's a whole nother show in itself, and we will definitely get to that in the future. But as we can see through scripture, James played quite an important role in the early church. I just wanted to give you some basic background on James and who he was. But now let's go ahead and dig into chapter one. We're going to start in verse one and we're going to work our way through verse eight tonight. Chapter one, verse one, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad. Greeting. What we see here in one one is that this is a salutation or a greeting. He was initially writing this to the 12 tribes who had been scattered abroad, but it is extremely applicable to everyone who is in Christ Jesus. Remember in Galatians 3.28, we see that there is no more Jew or Gentile, but after Christ, there is only one defining factor in this lifetime, and that is faith in Christ Jesus and faith in him alone. There is no more Jew, no more Gentile. It is either Jesus or it is nothing. So even though this epistle was addressed to the 12 tribes in the intro, it is doctrine and encouragement that is applicable to everyone who is in Jesus Christ. Now, verse two, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire wanting nothing. Let's break this down. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're part of the brethren. We should count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. But what exactly are diverse temptations? In the Greek language, diverse temptations is made up of the two words, poikilos and parasmos, and literally refers to an umbrella of various types of trials in which our faith and our integrity is tested. Our virtue is put on trial, per se, in these temptations. This can include temptations forced to sin, but also different types of trials and tests in general. And always pertaining to our faith, it always goes back to our faith and our virtue and our integrity being tested and tried. So we're told here to be joyful about these tests. The Greek word we see for joy is kara. In context, it literally means to receive these tests or to receive these temptations in gladness. Now, James is about to explain why and how we can do this in verse 3. He says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. The trying of your faith worketh patience. And we're supposed to know this. We're supposed to remember this. When we are successful in persevering through the trials and the tests, when we make it through the temptations, Our faith is tried and proven, 
But specifically, a blessing is attached to being faithful through these tests. We're told that these tests and trials work patience in our lives. And patience, defined in the Greek language, is dealing with being constant, steadfast, and even persevering. And verse 4 continues, Let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. How awesome is that? When patience has her perfect work in you, you're going to be made perfect and entire. You're going to want nothing. When we allow patience to operate in our lives, especially as we're being tested and tried in this world, when we allow patience to operate in our lives, we are being made perfect and entire, wanting nothing. This means we are being completed spiritually. We are lacking nothing in regards to our lives of faith. We are being made complete in Christ Jesus. These are all part of the spiritual life and development of the believer. So it is absolutely vital that as we grow in the Lord, that we respond to the trials and temptations correctly. Responding to these trials and temptations in a biblical manner will bring about spiritual endurance. It will bring about character and completion. So that's why James is telling us to rejoice and be glad when we're tested and tempted. It's literally a trial where our faith is being put on the stand and the testimony of how we deal with these circumstances will build us up spiritually if we respond correctly. So rejoice, knowing that these trials are merely opportunities to grow and develop in your faith. This is so important to remember anytime you're in the midst of a trial or a difficult temptation of sorts. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, that it is an opportunity to endure and to be blessed. Now moving on to verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. So if any of you lack wisdom, that's what James is saying. He's saying if any of you lack wisdom. Now let's, let's just define wisdom for a second. Wisdom in the Greek language is Sophia. We've discussed this word before, and it's a pretty interesting word. We're not only dealing with intelligence here, but we're also dealing with the knowledge of things of human and divine nature, which are acquired by experience. I'm sure you know people, as well as all of us, who have been through a lot in life, and many of them have gained wisdom through their journeys and their personal experiences. But what's amazing is that we see here that God can give you wisdom even without all of those same life experiences that other people have had. So if you faithfully ask God for wisdom, he will give it to you liberally. This is a promise because it says that God gives wisdom liberally or freely, openly. I want to paint a picture here for you. Think about when you're at a restaurant and the server comes to your table to refill your glass. And let's just say you're, you're drinking water. So you've got your glass of water, you're drinking it down, and here comes the server to refill your water. They'll pour your refills liberally. I mean, they have all the refills anyone could ask for, and then some. They're not going to run out of water. It doesn't cost them anything to fill your water glass 10 times. Therefore, they will pour your refills freely. All you have to do is ask for it, and you can have it. Likewise, with asking God for wisdom, he has unlimited amounts of wisdom, and he will liberally pour it out upon those people who ask for it. But many people never ask for wisdom. 
What about you? Are you asking for wisdom? Do you sincerely value wisdom to the point of praying for it and faithfully expecting it? Remember, God will give it to you if you sincerely and faithfully ask for it. Moving on to verses 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let's break this down. This is heavy. No matter what you're asking the Lord for, you have got to ask faithfully and with a sincere belief. Consider the waves of the sea being forced back and forth, forward and backward. They're wavering. Many people waver in their faith or what they even consider to be their faith. It's very popular nowadays that people are constantly wavering in many things. And even solid Christians are tempted to waver. You see, our flesh gets involved and we try to rationalize things in earthly terms. And just like the waves of the sea, many of us are tossed back and forth as we waver in our faith with doubt. Asking the Lord for anything with a wavering faith will never result in any blessings. Because verse 7 tells us that a wavering man won't receive anything from the Lord. Verse 8 tells us that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. We could really hash out the different ways that wavering shows up in the life of a believer or just people in general. But the bottom line here that I want you all to understand is this. As Christians, when we are tempted with wavering doubts along the way, that's where we have to resist those temptations. That's where we have to overcome them with the promises of Scripture. You see, your faith will be tried. And if it's genuine faith, you will not live a life of constant wavering. Will you be faced with temptations of doubt sometimes? Absolutely. But the definition of wavering in the Greek literally carries the idea of discriminating against something. So when you waver in your faith, you're actually discriminating against your faith. And we have to rise above the temptations of doubt and wavering when it comes to our lives of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many different ways the enemy can tempt us, ladies and gentlemen. The enemy will come at you from every direction in order to try and get you to waver in your faith, in order to bring doubt upon your heart. None of us are perfect. No, not one of us are perfect. We all face doubts at different times in our life. And many of us begin to waver in those moments. But when we overcome those temptations, we are being perfected and completed in Jesus Christ. Patience is having her perfect work as we overcome those diverse temptations. And our godly character, our integrity is being built up and shaped every time. So rejoice and count it all joy, my brethren. I really want to encourage everybody to take the time to personally go through and read these verses slowly, one by one on your own. Compare your lives to the things you're reading in Scripture and take the time to sincerely pray these things upon your lives. As true followers of Jesus Christ, we have been given the Word of God supernaturally and intentionally. And remember, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works.
2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. It is my prayer that our journey through James will bless you richly and that it will encourage you in your spiritual lives. If you're not a born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, stay tuned in and I'll share with you shortly how this can be your day of salvation. Until the next time we meet again, God bless and good night. If you're listening right now and you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua as your personal Lord and Savior, and you haven't accepted His holy sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins, it is absolutely impossible for you to have a solid understanding of His Word. It's also impossible to find protection from the demonic realm and the days that are fast approaching, friends. And furthermore, it is impossible for you to have peace with Yahweh, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. You can start anew right now. You can repent of your sins and you can have the wages of your sins paid in full. Now is the time to repent and turn away from your sins and make right with the will of God. The Bible actually declares that we don't know what tomorrow holds. So we must take action with the time that we have right now. Repentance is the first step, regardless of what you may have heard. This means turning 180 degrees from your past thoughts, actions, and lifestyles that are in opposition to the Most High God. Understand that repentance is a process, and it is absolutely attainable because of the grace and mercy and power of God. Because of Jesus Christ and His once and for all sacrifice, you can be forgiven of all of your iniquity and every sin you've ever committed. Yahweh is a jealous God, but He is also rich in mercy. And tonight, if you're willing to admit your wrongs and repent, He is willing to meet you right where you are, and He will show you that mercy right now, friends. The wages of our sin is death, but tonight we can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life, but only through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. I am so thankful that God sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, a living sacrifice, who shed His sinless and perfect blood to pay the debt of our sins, which offers us the ability to be seen as blameless before God on that day of judgment. And make no mistake, there will come a day of judgment, ladies and gentlemen. Let today be the beginning of your communion and peace with God as you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you can begin putting on the armor of God and growing in an intimate relationship with Him. It is the will of God that you don't perish, but rather that you repent and enter into a relationship with Him based on His terms. If you're not sure of what God's terms are, I want to challenge you to start reading your Bibles and learn firsthand what God expects from you. If you don't have a Bible, we highly recommend that you pick up a King James Bible, which is easy for anyone to find. Jesus Christ is our only hope, friends, and my prayer is that you believe on Him tonight. That's the most important part of the show, and by far the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life. Amen. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I sure hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived on our website, fourthwatchradio.com, all spelled out, F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O. 
fourthwatchradio.com, fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find links to multiple streaming options, and every broadcast is dated and summarized for your convenience. Everything we offer is completely free, including our mobile apps for Apple and Android devices. You can easily click the link on the website to be taken to whichever app store applies to your device. Be sure to stay tuned in every Thursday for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the Fourth Watch is ministered to you and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the donate link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network.